0: Continuing uh, this morning, our journey through the book of James, being James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Boys and girls, make sure you have your children's translation there. <clears throat> Before we go to God's Word, let's go together in prayer. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your Word. We do thank you that you have given us your truth, that we might know you, that we might come to see more of Christ. And be known by Him. Lord, we pray that as we come to a text that is um, critiquing us, perhaps even convicting us, we pray, Lord, that You would give us soft hearts, that we would be open to letting You critique us, Lord. We pray that You might give us then change and growth for Your sake and for Your glory. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. James has been a uh, rough and yet wonderful book so far. I hope you have uh, enjoyed it as much as I have. You know, James is challenging because James will not let us settle into a, let's just call it a church attending hobby that has real, no real effect on our life. <clears throat> James comes right out and tells us, we saw last week, and he, and he did it a couple weeks ago too, it doesn't matter what we say we believe. Our life reflects our heart and our ultimate beliefs. And that makes many of us uncomfortable, myself included. I don't like to be scrutinized and critiqued, and yet that's what James is really about. He's a fruit inspector, for lack of a better word. By our fruit, Jesus said, people will know who we really worship. And James comes along as an apostle, and he wants to know who it is we really worship. See, but the beautiful thing about grace, the beautiful thing about the grace that we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that it sets us free from performance. But that grace, if it is real, does transform us. And So James can be a difficult book because it can almost be making us want to perform, but he comes back with the grace, no, it's not about performing, it's about being transformed by grace. So James is all about showing us the proof of that transformation. So far, if you remember, he's called us to be doers of the word, not just hearers. He showed us last week that faith without works is dead. So James is very much like a prophet in the Old Testament. He wants to challenge the people of God, the people who go to church, but who aren't necessarily interested in pursuing discipleship. James is about challenging that person. People who are involved, let's say, but they aren't really living in the integrity, the wholeness of gospel transformation. So with that audience in mind, let's go now to James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. This is God's Word. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is God's Word. So, last week, James forced us to address our works that we do as Christians, the fruit of the gospel in our lives. And he did that through an apparent contradiction in the Bible. Well, today, James forces us to address the common contradiction in us. The show me your faith by your works from chapter 2, now James is telling us, well, guess what? Your words show forth your real faith. What you say reflects what you actually believe. Our speech, how we talk to and about each other, shows what we truly believe. This shows up in verse 1. Most English translations call it teachers. But really, James tells us, not many of us should presume to be masters is the word here. This is the idea of being a self-appointed master, an expert, we could say, setting yourself In judgment of others. In fact, we know from the ancient use of this particular word that it was almost an insult. In fact, when it was used, it was used ironically. Very similar to us, you know, I don't know if people say this anymore, but I remember growing up hearing, Who died and made you boss? Very similar to the word boss, there is how this word teacher or master is used. It's almost a slang of, What are you doing being a master? So James is really saying, Who appointed you a master? Don't assume you're a master over people. Don't assume you do that. James is talking to a church that has people who have appointed themselves to be masters judging the rest of the church. That is readily applicable to every single one of us in the room because we've all done that. And so this passage wants us to see that the words of our mouth are the works of from last chapter that demonstrate what we really believe. So with that in mind, here's where we're going to go today. Here's our, I want to give you a theme sentence. You can remember this, write this down. Maybe at lunch, we were trying to remember the sermon. Instead of talking about you know sports or something, you could talk about God's Word. Here's where we're going to go today. Since our hearts leak through our mouths, our words demonstrate our real hope. See, what we're going to look at today is that monsters... Separate faith and works. But gospel transformation unites faith and works. Yes, I said monsters. Maybe I've been watching too much Scooby-Doo in my house, but monsters were on my mind this week. So monsters separate faith and works, but we're going to see that gospel transformation unites faith and works. So as we walk through this text... I want you to understand what James is doing here. I want to show you a graphic here because verse 2 and verse 8 in this passage really are the key to understanding this. So verse 2 shows us a potential perfect person. And the question is, is that a challenge for us or is that a promise for us? And then verse 8 comes and says, look, you cannot control your mouth. Is that a defeat or is that hope? And we're going to look at, Two different groups of people. One group of people sees verse 2 as a challenge and they get to verse 8 in utter defeat. Another group sees verse 2 as a promise and when we get to verse 8, they actually have hope. So let's dive into this together. First thing we're going to look at is we're going to look at monsters. James tells us last week, faith without works is dead. And what happens then is we end up with these dead monsters in the church. What do I mean by that? Look with me at verse 2. Here's what he says. He says, For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. See, monsters read this verse as a challenge. They think, Okay, I can do that. And it lays out two paths before them. And both of these paths are about seizing control of life. They think, If I try hard enough, If I, if I, if I do it with discipline, if I, if I get focused, I can be that perfect person. James has just issued me a challenge, and I'm going to try it. This is the Pharisee impulse that we all have inside of us. And it results in us judging others that we deem aren't doing as well as we are against this challenge. Now, I don't want you to think that this is my modern, cynical interpretation of this. This is actually what a European pastor named John Calvin, how he kind of interpreted this whole passage about 500 years ago. This is not my invention. So our first group of monsters here that see this as a challenge, these are the people we saw last week. If you were here last week, I'll give you a hint, zombies. Maybe I have been watching too much Scooby-Doo. So these are these are the people who are all about works without faith. James actually calls them in in chapter 2, verse 26, the walking dead. Sounds like a zombie to me. These are people who have lots of religious practices and habits without actually believing the gospel. They're zombies. They're dead inside. They read this passage and they think with just a little bit of discipline, if I try really hard, I can control my life. I can be that perfect person James is talking about. I can then offer to God my religious performance and He will give me in return a good life. I can be happy then. I can have peace if I try really hard. It's true confession time. I was this person. Absolutely. When I placed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ in high school, I I had a very superficial understanding of the Gospel. It, It was all about what I had done about my making my choice to believe in Jesus. But as I began to really be changed by the Scriptures and and, and by the Holy Spirit working in my life, I began to understand that the Bible clearly teaches I was too sinful to have made such a choice. I didn't do it. That actually God came to me as we see Jesus come to Lazarus and He raised my dead heart to life and He said, follow me. And it was after He did that work of grace that I then placed my faith and trust in Him. And that changed everything for me. This is the Protestant doctrine of the sovereignty of God in salvation. And it's wonderful. But the problem is this. When you first come to an understanding of God's sovereignty and salvation, especially if you've been a Christian for a while and especially if you are kind of are theologically minded, you tend to enter what is lovingly called the cage-fighting stage. This one issue of God's sovereignty and salvation becomes the issue by which you judge every other Christian. You are ready to debate any dear, earnest Christian who disagrees with you on this. You are looking for a fight. This, this mentality leads to being self-confession time, very miserable, Very performance-based. You're all about making sure you have your personal worship. You don't call it quiet time. That's not serious enough. It's a personal worship. And you better do it in the morning and you better do it in the evening. Not because you want to commune with God, but because you want to show off to God. Look, I've done this. Give me a good life. You make sure that at least whenever you're not reading the Scripture, you better be reading something by a dead guy who was a Puritan. Yeah, exactly. See, it looks very godly from the outside. You're very serious about your faith. People are very impressed with you. But inside, there was no life for me. I mean, I was saved by grace. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I was saved by grace. I knew I was going to heaven. If something should happen to me, I had placed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But I did not have this joy of a relationship with the Creator. Why? Because being a godly person was just too hard. I was miserable trying to jump through all these hoops I thought I had to do to impress God. I was actually a monster. It was all about religious works on the outside. But I was dead on the inside. I was a zombie. But I made myself feel better about it by looking around and thinking, well, at least I'm more godly than those people. I must be winning. And I'm especially winning if I can make you feel judged and guilty for not being as godly as I am. Because that's what zombies do. They eat other people. James says the very religious people, the people that seem to have it all together with all the religious stuff, the self-appointed experts, the masters, many times they're actually the walking dead. It's all about works and performance, but they don't actually believe in their heart the gospel of grace. But there's another kind of monster in the church. We've got zombies. We also have another group of people we saw last week. These people also see verse 2, the perfect person as a challenge. Don't stumble. Be perfect. Control your life. Have peace. They think, I can do that. But instead of being zombies, they're the opposite. They are ghosts. They are all about faith. They're all about belief. They care very little for works. They care very little for actions. They tend to be very free through their denial of difficulties and temptations. Ghosts offer to God very earnest, heartfelt, religious beliefs. It's all about having faith. Deny difficulties. Just be spiritual and your problems will go away. Just believe harder. Again, true confession time. This was me when I first became a Christian. Anybody ever heard... that You can, you can raise your hands now. Anybody ever heard of the victorious Christian life movement? Yes. Oh, man. Okay. If you were a Christian in the 90s, this was like it. Okay, books, Bible covers, whatever a Bible cover is. Well, CD covers, pens. They were just selling this stuff, victorious Christian life. In the 90s, it was, you know, watching friends and having a victorious Christian life. That's all it was. There were books upon books written about the victorious Christian life. It's basically a heresy from the first century called Gnosticism, repackaged and sold to us. And it says this, real Christianity... The kind of Christianity you're really thirsting for is found by walking in victory. All these regular Christians you see who are praying for help with temptation, praying for their struggles with depression, praying for their financial struggles, their health struggles, those people just don't get it. See, ghosts think if you really understand the promises of God, He wants you to live in victory. You just got to have more faith and everything will work out. Don't worry about it, just have more faith. The biggest church in America today, in Houston, Texas, self-consciously, in writing, unapologetically, grabs onto this theology. And I repeat, it's the biggest church in America. This junk is even working its way through our denomination. We have ordained men teaching from the pulpits that you don't really have to do anything to be godly. You don't really have to fight temptation You just need to believe the gospel more profoundly. Now, again, don't hear what I'm not saying. My main job in life, my main goal, the thing that gets me up on Sunday morning as your pastor is I want you to believe the gospel more profoundly. But that's not the whole truth of Christianity. Logic 101. A half-truth presented as a whole truth is an untruth. Okay? Try that again. A half-truth Presented as the whole truth is an untruth. And so, if someone says you you don't have to try to fight temptation, just believe the gospel more profoundly, that's an untruth because it's not the whole truth. There are plenty of commands in Scripture and expectations in the Bible for us to fight the good fight, to struggle against indwelling sin. Ghosts see someone struggling with depression, with relationships, with temptations, with sin, and they judge them. They don't believe the gospel. It's a very passive view of Christianity. It's removed from physical trials and struggles. It's all about believing harder. It's a ghost faith. And earnest, struggling, real Christians with a weak faith see these monsters supposedly living in victory or really believing the gospel and they think to themselves, I could never believe like that. I guess I'm not really a Christian. or I guess I could never be a Christian like that. Or even worse, I guess Christianity isn't for me. I can't fit... I can't fit in with them. And they walk away. See, but ghosts don't care. As long as they can control their life and have peace by believing more profoundly than you do, they're winning. Because that's what ghosts do. They scare people away. Okay, so why all this monster talk? What are you doing, Pastor Sean? Remember what James is trying to show us. Since our hearts leak through our words They leak through our mouths what we actually say. How we talk to each other actually demonstrates our real faith. James is talking to church attenders about how they speak to each other. Our words reveal what we put our hope in. Are we zombies who hope in doing the right religious things? Or are we ghosts who hope in believing correctly enough and hard enough? See, neither of those monsters puts their hope in the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Their hope's in themselves. And so what happens to both of them is they crash against the reality of verse 8. Let me remind you of verse 8. Look with me at verse 8. What does James say? He says, No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. They hit against that reality. And they fall into bitterness. And they fall into apathy. They just check out, you know what, I don't care anymore. I'm done. I'll I'll show up, but I'm not going to get involved. I'm done. Because it's too hard. I've tried, and I've tried, and God didn't give me what I wanted. Forget it. I believed the right things. I did the right things. Those people who don't believe the right things, they're happier than I am. Forget it. See, monsters can't produce from within themselves enough to please God, and so they eventually fail, and they fall into bitterness. Oh, dear Dear believer, look into your heart right now. Is that you? Maybe you know someone like this. We have a name for it, actually. There's a technical term. We call these people de-churched. Not unchurched, de-churched. They have been there, they have done that, and they've rejected it. But they've never actually experienced Christianity in the Gospel. They've never actually tasted it. They've tasted this zombie or ghost junk. Instead, they've experienced the monstrosity of trying to perform for God. And when life doesn't work out, the evil in their heart leaks through their mouth. Oh, but there's another way. There is another way. James says, faith without works is dead. It creates monsters. But he also tells us that faith united to works creates life. And we see that life in the church. Instead of being monsters of death, the church of Jesus Christ is a family of life. The church of Jesus Christ is people who are alive. And we see verse 2 as a promise. Because we say, oh, right, He's not talking about me. Jesus Christ was perfect and complete for me. Whereas monsters judge others, we judge ourselves. We admit, I do stumble. I am not perfect We hear how we talk to each other. The things we think, the things we say about other Christians drives us to repent of the evil in our hearts leaking out of our mouths. And we repent, why? Because we rest in the hope that the Lord Himself who requires perfection, who demands holiness, that He Himself provided for His people through the perfect man, Jesus Christ. See, we don't see verse 2 as a challenge to achieve. We see it as a promise to rest in. There was one who was perfect, and we can be united to Him. See, and so instead of trying harder, because that's what monsters do, we confess our utter hopelessness and helplessness before our wicked hearts. We say, I can't do this. I'm hopeless. I cannot overcome this evil inside of me. I understand how bad my heart is. We get to verse 6. Look at verse 6 and we say, yep. Look at me at verse 6. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. You can't really tell this in English But James is really worked up at this point. He's so upset at the beginning of this verse, he can barely speak. Um, Several years ago, uh, as many of you know, a previous call, part of my pastoral duties, I was the chaplain uh, to our fire department. And my first day as the chaplain, the, the chief was taking me around to the different firehouses and introducing me to the captains on duty. And we pulled up to this one house, and the chief goes, that's weird, there's a fire department truck there without a door, and there's a door on the ground, And then there's a big truck there with, like the big, big fire truck with paint matching the door. And the chief is like, "Uh uh-oh. And we come around the corner and there is a very red-faced captain talking to one of the firefighters. And he sees us and immediately straightens up and the chief introduces him to me. And the man is still upset and he can't complete a sentence. He's like, "Hi, hi, I can't. And I was like, what's wrong with this guy? And then I realized, oh, firefighter just ripped the door of the truck off and was in the middle of being cussed out by his superior when we pulled up. He doesn't want to cuss in front of the chaplain, so he can't talk right now. (laughs) Right? And that's literally how James is in the first part of this verse. There's no verbs. He just literally says, tongue, fire, universe, evil. He's just so worked up. See, and unless you're a monster, you get that. We've seen it happen in our lives. We've seen ourselves do this. The tongue is a favorite weapon of Satan. Yes, Christians can be tools of Satan to disrupt the church. Anytime someone's words disrupt discipleship or hinder evangelism, they are being a tool of Satan. Anytime evangelism is hindered by someone's words a tool of satan anytime discipleship is hindered because of words it's a tool of satan satan exists to disrupt evangelism and discipleship he couldn't get to jesus the resurrection completely defeated him he couldn't hold jesus in the ground So revelation chapter 12 verse 19 tells us what does he do he goes off to make war against christ's beloved his church so he wants to stop discipleship and stop evangelism. And James says his chief weapon is born again tongues. Ouch! Here's how he put it for the kids so they would understand. Look with me in verse six, boys and girls. <clears throat> it says this. If I can find. It. There it is. Our words are a fire, a fountain of evil. Our words pollute our whole body, change the course of our life towards evil. And are a favorite tool of Satan himself. Boys and girls, have you ever said something and as soon as you say it, you immediately regret it? Mom and dad do it too. It happens in the church. See, but those who are alive in Christ, instead of reacting like monsters and trying harder, we recognize that my selfishness has just leaked out of my mouth. And we're broken because of it. We grieve when we see, us, see it around us in the church. And so it drives us to verse 8 not as a wall of defeat but as a defiant hope. Look with me at verse 8 again. It says this, No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Here's how James says it literally. See, this makes you think of something else. No one from humanity is able to tame the tongue. If you have ears to hear doesn't that give you like a little hint of hope there doesn't that make you think huh there might be someone who's not from humanity then who can help us see james tells us we have to seek help from outside humanity that's why there's hope jesus christ has come from outside humanity with resources we don't have he is able to tame the tongue He had complete mastery of Himself. And so as verse 2 promises, He was the perfect man. See, when we take our need, our helplessness, our hopelessness to this Jesus, we can rest upon Him instead of ourselves. In other words, He turns ghosts and zombies into people when we take our helplessness to Him. Instead of trying harder, we say, I can't, will you help me? See, we rest our hope on Jesus' performance, not our performance. He fulfilled everything God demands of us. He was perfect. He fully trusted God. He believed correctly and earnestly with his whole heart. He was perfect. He's the only person who completely united all of his works with his faith. Faith. He never dropped the ball. He always performed correctly. And because of that, he is life itself. And united to Him, we have life. Instead of being monsters, we can have peace. The biblical promise of shalom and integrity. Instead of being monsters who are half alive somehow, we can be a renewed people through Jesus Christ. And that living reality then puts us onto the positive Side of how this passage ends. It's a little weird, but look with me, verses 11 and 12. Let's see what James is saying. He says this Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. See, he's trying to show two completely different things. I think for the kids' translation, we said, Can a peach tree produce broccoli? You know, heavens no, right? See, what we really are on the inside will show up on the outside is what he's saying. And so James says, if you're pouring forth all this junk, then guess what? You're still junk on the inside. You need to be made new. You don't tell junk to clean it up. You take junk and make something incredible out of it. That's why James ends positively on fresh water. Because that's who James wants us to be in Jesus Christ clean and fresh because we've been united to Christ. Not clean because we tried harder. Not fresh from letting go and letting God and just being earnest. But being completely transformed into a different person by the Gospel. The truth that Jesus Christ lived the life we should have lived. I use that phrase all the time. Don't just let it go through you. Listen to that again. He was the ultimate doer of the Word. He then died for all of His people who were not doers of the Word, but instead who were zombies and ghosts living outside of God's will. He died for zombies and ghosts. It was a death that we deserve before a holy God. Jesus took that death. And then we place our faith and trust in Him. His perfection is given to us. And so we are adopted as His daughters and sons, as we read in the confession today. We are adopted because of what Jesus has done, not because of what we have done. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave is the proof that all of that is true. That is the New Testament Gospel of grace. Jesus can tame our tongues because He broke our stone-cold hearts and replace them with a heart full of life, a heart of flesh. See, for those of us who've placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, what beats in our chest is a heart of life. And the overflow of that heart comes forth in our mouth, which means we speak truth and love to each other. Don't you want to be that kind of person in that kind of community? Quit trying so hard then. And judging others who aren't trying as hard as you. Quit trying to be as earnest as possible. And judging those who aren't as serious and earnest. And simply step back and rest in the performance and earnestness of Jesus for you. Cast off everything you think you know about Christianity. Everything you've called religion, all the stuff you grew up with, just get rid of all that and simply place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He will change you and your mouth will reflect it. Let's pray together. Now, Father God, we thank You for Your grace in the Gospel. Lord, we thank You for the truth of Your Word, Lord. And we admit that even now our hearts want to deny it. That we have a deep impulse just to be more serious and try harder or just to be more earnest and believe more purely and thinking that that will please You. Lord, would You call us back to simple faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Would You set us free from being dead inside zombies performing and eating other people? Would You set us free from being just useless, wispy ghosts who are all about belief and we scare other people away with our spirituality. Instead, Lord, would you make us people through Jesus Christ, uniting faith and works, walking in peace. Lord, we cannot do this. Would you do amazing work of grace in our hearts and show it forth in our mouths, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.